Well, good morning. We turn your Bible to John chapter 8. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship. The preaching of God's Word. We're going to be looking at one verse today, John 8, verse 12, and then we will bring that verse into context next week. Some verses just virtually require us to helicopter on them. And so we will look at 8 and 8, 12 in context of the passage next week, but we will focus on verse 12 today. In John 8, 12, it says, again, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we gather each week, and as we gather each week, it's a testimony that what Jesus says is true here. And Lord, I pray today that as we consider what he says in this verse, in this passage, that wherever there is darkness, his light would overcome it. We pray that for the people that are gathered here this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On October the 16th, 1555, 467 years ago today, in Oxford, England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley gave their bodies to be burned at the stake on the orders of, of Bloody Mary. And the reason for that is that they were preaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were defending the finished and the sufficient atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross in the satisfaction of God's wrath on sin. And as the flames quickly arose, can you imagine being burned at the stake? The flames are rising. Latimer famously encouraged Ridley with these words, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. I love that. Play the man. We shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace that shall never be put out. And the Lord has used that lit candle for almost five centuries to overcome the darkness. But less is known is about how Latimer himself was converted, the one who spoke those words. In fact, he was a, a Roman Catholic priest. But there was a, a monk, an English monk, who was nicknamed Little Bilney. And Little Bilney was Roman Catholic, but he had read Martin Luther's writings. 
And he was gloriously converted to Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel that came through those writings. Luther himself had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as he pondered Galatians and, and Romans. And now his light was coming uh, to this man, Little Bilney. So Little Bilney was converted to Christ, but, but he recognized he, he wasn't very educated, and, and so he wouldn't have a lot of influence among the priest, the Roman Catholic Church, but he had a burden for this man uh, whose name we just mentioned, uh, Hugh Latimer. And so he wondered and he asked himself, how can I get the gospel to the priest, Hugh Latimer? And so he came up with an idea. Priests were required to hear confessions. And so he set up a confession with the priest, Hugh Latimer. And he went to the confession booth and he began to confess the gospel to the priest. He said, I, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I deserve the judgment of God and there's nothing I can do about it. There's no works, there's no merit that can serve as a ladder to this holy and righteous God. But I confess that God in his mercy and grace made a way. He sent a savior, he sent the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my sin was imputed to him as he died on the cross, taking the judgment of God in my place. And his righteousness was imputed to me as I received him by faith. And he was raised for my justification. I confess that. And as the priest Hugh Latimer heard that confession, he was gloriously converted to Jesus Christ. And he became one of the great preachers of the English Reformation and his martyrdom for the sake of Christ lit up a sin-darkened Europe. And it all began with the little-known little Bilney who through Martin Luther had his own darkness overcome by the light of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to overcome the darkness. He came to invade the darkness. And our text makes that so very clear this morning. And it's no accident that this verse follows off the hills of the woman who had been caught red-handed in adultery. She had lived long in spiritual darkness, but now had experienced an exodus from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. And now having been redeemed from her slavery by the Lamb of God and en route to the home promised to her in the new heavens and new earth, here's the question, how was she to find her way? Well, the Israel found its way by the pillar of fire between their exodus and the possession of their in inheritance. And Jesus says in the new and the greater exodus, it's by following him, the light of the world. Indeed, that's what we see at the very beginning of this one verse, two points this morning. We're gonna see what Jesus professes and what Jesus promises. What Jesus professes is he's the only light. 
He's the only light. Look with me in the first part of verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am a light. No, definite article. That matters. I am the light of the world. This is the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. The first was John 6, verse 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. The distinction of the Son from the Father, but their unity in essence and glory is seen throughout the Gospel of John with his intentional use of this personal name. Jesus saying, I am, seven times. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This is God's personal name, his covenantal name, the great I am. We sing about him, don't we? The Lord. Jesus is using that. He's ascribing it to himself. So let's just step back and look at the big picture for a moment. In chapter 6, Jesus professed that he is the true bread. He is the manna from heaven that the manna in the wilderness here is pointed to. In John 7, he says, I am the living water. That was the water from the rock that, that nourished the, the people of God in, their, in the wilderness years. And here he is saying, I am the light. Uh, he is drawing on the wilderness wandering years as God's people made their way into their inheritance after their redemption. And so just as Yahweh, the great I am, had provided bread by the manna and water from the rock and light from the pillar of fire while Israel was in the wilderness. John is showing us that all of that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, the Feast of Tabernacle has just concluded. Um, and, and, and it's likely the, the next day, which is Monday. So it's, it's likely Monday in the week. Um, along with the water pouring ceremony we looked at, with regard to the, the Feast of Tabernacle, it also included a, a lighting of candles. And so you had this four great candelabras. And in each of these four great candelabras were four golden bowls filled with oil. And they would light that oil and, and that oil would, would fuel a massive fire. Imagine 16 bowls that are just overcome with fire and it lit up the entire temple. And we know about that from Jewish text which describe the ceremony. But the one thing those Jewish texts do not tell us is its purpose. But most scholars believe that the water pouring ceremony pointed back to God's provision of water from the rock during the wilderness wandering years. And that the, the lighting ceremony that lit up the temple pointed back to the great pillar of fire that led them during those years. And Jesus 
has audaciously stated he is the one in whom this ceremony points. Now, 60 verses in Scripture, 60 of them, um, presents light and darkness as a contrasting pair. So that's a pretty uh, common theme in, in the Bible. Now, in John's writings, darkness and light are metaphors that are used for two purposes. The first purpose is to describe the distinction between God and sinful man. There's infinite distinction between God and sinful man. So, for instance, John will write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John is saying there is darkness in us, but God is light, in him there is no darkness. Furthermore, the incarnation, that is the coming of God in the flesh, is the coming of the light. As he will write in John 1, the one who shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so, one of the purposes of the metaphor, of the contrast between light and darkness, is to demonstrate the distinction between an infinitely holy and righteous God and fallen and sinful and sin-darkened humankind. But, but a second purpose was to... Um, was in the ethical sense that humankind embraces the darkness because our works are evil. That's chapter 3, verse 19, Gospel of John. And so it speaks of the ethical sense of God being light and we, our works being evil. In fact, um, we embrace the darkness. Why? Because the darkness hides the evil of our works, or so we think. In other words, we're comforted by the dark but because it hides the evil. And so we are practicing evil. We're comforted by evil people and sin-darkened people. And we love to be in that world because it does not expose our sin. With approximately 200 references, think about this, 200 times in the Bible, darkness is, is given to us. It's a major theme in the biblical drama. And so in Scripture... Darkness symbolizes ignorance and folly. It symbolizes ignorance and folly. Proverbs, or Psalm 82 says, verse 5, The wicked have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. And so if you have ungodly friends or ungodly family members or ungodly co-workers... Uh, and, and you cannot make sense of their actions and their, and their worldview. Here it is. They are walking in darkness. They can't see their way. In John chapter 12, verse 35, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. That's, what, that's how sinners are described in the Bible. According to Scripture as well, darkness symbolizes the mind that's unilluminated by God's revelation. It's a sin-darkened mind. That's why Peter will write in 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He is saying it would do you well to open up your Bible 
and read it more than you read social media. Because it's the only lamp. Social media is not a lamp. It's darkness, generally. But the Word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place. Darkness also symbolizes calamity and despair. I just read Job uh, chapter 3 two days ago with my Bible reading plan. And over and over, you see the word dark or darkness. You know, Job is experiencing calamity. He's lost everything in the created order that he holds dear. And that word dark or darkness is found 26 to 36 times in the book of Job. Darkness also symbolizes wickedness. The book of Proverbs addresses those in Proverbs 2, verse 13, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. And so the wicked life is the way of darkness. Proverbs 4, 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And incidentally, uh, I say this to the young, uh, young guys, young girls, be careful who you marry. If you marry as a Christian, an unbeliever, this is what you're getting yourself into. You're marrying someone who does not know over what they stumble. I mean, this is the case. It's always the case where, where light has not shown or where light has been rejected. But where Jesus comes as the light of the world, it overcomes the darkness of wickedness. For example, it transformed 11 of the 12 mealy-mouthed disciples into martyrs. 11 of the 12. Well, John was exiled he may as well have been martyred, but 10 of the 12 were martyred. But originally, they were a bunch of compromising, self-promoting cowards. But the light of Christ transformed them. And it has transformed 2,000 years of sinners like you and me into saints. It's the light of Christ. It, it countered the depravity in the early centuries of, of infanticide and abortion, which was infamously universal among the Greeks and the Romans in those early years before Christ and just after Christ ascended. And, and abortion rates were, were, were so very high among the Romans in that time uh, because the Romans had no respect for the sanctity of marriage. That's behind, usually, uh, someone who embraces the wickedness of abortion. But what the light did is it restored the dignity and the sanctity of, of marriage. And with the restoration of marriage, that light also elevated sexual morality. It also restored the freedom and the dignity of women, which was so very low in the Roman and Greek societies. But the light of Christ came and it restored the dignity back to our women. As well, the light of Christ brought charity and compassion 
to a loveless world. What was behind the hospitals all being formed? It was the light of Christ coming to bear. The light of Christ ended slavery. The light of Christ brought education to a dumb world and it restored the dignity of the image of God. Uh, for example, this is a true story. I read this in a, in a book on how Christianity saved the world. During World War II, um, in a, on a remote island in the Pacific, a, an American soldier met a native uh, who, who, surprising to him, could, could actually read, and he actually had a Bible in his hand. And the American soldier said this to the native. We educated people no longer put much faith in that book. Well, the native, from a tribe of former cannibals, replied, well, it's good that we do, or you would be eaten by my people today. (laughs) But the light overcame the wickedness. In addition to symbolizing wickedness, darkness symbolizes anguish and misery. The prophet Isaiah depicts a fallen world as distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, Isaiah 8 verse 22. Who would want that? Isn't that interesting that we are drawn naturally to the very things that cause us anguish and, and misery. Darkness is also depicted as a spiritual force. It's not benign. It's not innocent. Uh, fallen humankind, Paul says, is in bondage, Ephesians six twelve, to the cosmic powers over this present darkness. There are cosmic spiritual powers behind the present darkness. Darkness. That's why we're drawn to that which will destroy us. It's spiritual warfare. Jesus himself spoke of in Luke 22 of the power of darkness. There's a power behind the darkness. So if you have a, an unbelieving spouse, if you have an unbelieving parent or an unbelieving brother or sister or an unbelieving child, remember there is a power behind The darkness. Darkness also symbolizes divine judgment and divine wrath. Zephaniah foresees a day of wrath, a day of darkness and gloom. Zephaniah 1.15. The day of judgment will be a day of darkness, a day of gloom. Jesus describes eternal judgment as a place of outer darkness. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13. Hannah, in her glorious prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, says, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. That is the wicked's destiny. And so think about this. Let's gather all of these together. Ignorance and folly and rebellion and wickedness and and, and bondage and misery and judgment. All of this is the darkness from which the light our Lord Jesus Christ has come to overcome. 
But here's the problem. And it's a real problem. As, as commentator Richard Phillips points out, just as those who spend time in, a, in the dark acquire night vision, we've all been there. You walk into a dark room and, and, and you can't see a thing, but the longer you stay in that room, your eyes adjust and you develop night vision. We are by nature nocturnal creatures. What do I mean by that? In our natural state, darkness is normalized. Beware when darkness is normalized. Beware when the things that used to shock you no longer shock you. In fact, the things that used to grieve you make you laugh now. They entertain you. We need light. That is humanity's greatest need. We need the light of the world. And the light from the beginning, by the way, it was the first created thing. God created light. It was the first thing he created. You think light's important? But generally in the Bible, light from the beginning of creation symbolized not something created. It symbolized the person and the work of the Lord. In other words, God is the light, and God enlightens the darkness. And so, the, the psalmist will pray, uh, lift up the light, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, Psalm 4, verse 6. The psalmist recognizes his need for the light of God's face. Isaiah sees a day of the final triumph of the kingdom of God in, in chapter 60, when the Lord will be your everlasting light. That is his hope, that the whole earth will be filled. Every nook and cranny of this world, this sin-darkened world, will be filled with God's everlasting light. That makes sense behind James' description of God. When he calls God, he describes God in James chapter 1, the Father of lights. It makes sense of Paul's declaration in 1 Timothy 6 when he says God dwells in inapproachable light. But in time, the metaphor for light takes on a more specific form of representing, yes, God, but his Messiah. His Messiah. And that's why the Song of Sol uh, Simeon, Simeon will say in Luke 2.32 uh, that this Messiah is a light for revelation. Earlier, we saw in John that he writes, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the coming of Christ in chapter nine, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Who is Isaiah talking about? Well, we're not left to wonder. Because in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, Jesus applies that to himself. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, what's interesting is what he says in the very next verse. After applying Isaiah to himself, here's what he says. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Do you see the implications of that? In applying that passage to himself, Jesus is saying that this light is not a universal bestowal of light on all of humankind. No, light from Jesus that results in salvation assumes repentance and faith. And that's what we see in the, the second part of this verse. In the second part of this verse, is we've seen uh, what Jesus has uh, professed. Now, in the second part of this passage, we see what he promises. And here's what he promises. He will enlighten sinners, but he will only enlighten his followers. Look at me in the second part of verse 12. Again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. No, so what is the connection between light and life? He will have the light of life. Well, again, we've already seen in John 1, 4, he gives us the answer. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. And, and so the life of Christ gives the light. Imagine the oil in those bowls in the candelabras. The oil was what gave life to the light, okay? And so the oil representing Messiah or anointed one, I believe that oil in some way prefigured the person and work of Messiah because that's what anointed means, to be anointed by oil, Messiahed. So this life from the oil gave the light. So we are naturally dead to God. We are blind to his glory. We're deaf to his word, okay? We, and we can't see his glory. We can't see his light. But this life of Christ comes to bear. And he imparts to us the life-giving Holy Spirit. And the eyes of our hearts are opened the eyes, our eyes are enlightened. Our ears are open to hear the word of Christ. The light has come to bear in our sin-darkened world. And so if the Son of God is the life of light and he is the light itself and light then becomes a natural symbol for salvation. So... First Peter 2, where do you think Peter learned this from? Jesus himself. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, the people are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what salvation is. It's to be called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or how about Colossians 1? Paul writes, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So to be saved is to be delivered. That is Exodus language. You are delivered not from the darkness of Egypt or some kind of political uh, structure. You are delivered from the power of darkness. Perhaps the most important verse in this regard is 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
And so Jesus is the light of the world. But everyone isn't saved. Salvation, John is telling us here, Jesus is telling us here, is bestowed, yes, by grace. But there's a conditional aspect. It comes by grace through faith. Or as Jesus describes it here, following him. Later, he's going to say in John chapter 12, listen to this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. For John, believing and following are synonyms. Okay? It's not just believing in an intellectual assent that you can pass some kind of theology exam. To believe is to follow. Indeed, that following metaphor is used in the book of Exodus as they followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I think it's intentional. And so, uh, William Hendrickson is correct. A Christian must follow where the light leads. He is not permitted to map out his own course through the desert of this life. So what does it mean to be saved? It means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it radical? Some would say it's radical. Books have been written on that. Jesus would simply call it following him, which is no more radical than when Israel followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But following is the only way out of the darkness. If you want to remain in the darkness, that's a foolish decision. But following Christ is the only way out of the darkness. But here's what Jesus promises. If you follow me, you will get me. You will get the bread of life. You will get the living water. You will get the light of life. If you follow me, you will get resurrection. You will get the way to God. You will get the true vine. You will get the good shepherd who will direct your path. The world is divided into two parts, Paul says. Children of light, 1 Thessalonians 5, and children of the night, children of the darkness. The children of the, of the day. Children of the day, that's who, that's who we are, the believers. The children of the light were once children of the darkness. We were all were there. That was who we were. We were children of the darkness. We weren't born children of light. We were born again as children of the light. And we would have remained in the dark had the Messiah, the light of the world, not undergone darkness himself. He underwent the darkness of the cross. Indeed, the ultimate power of darkness was expressed when evil triumphed momentarily as Jesus hung dying on the cross. It, it was a triumph uh, that expressed itself in three hours of darkness on the earth. You can read about that in, in the gospels. It, it became completely pitch black 
as, tri- uh, as evil and darkness triumphed for a time. But Jesus was delivered from the power of darkness by the resurrection from the grave so that, as Acts 26 says, we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that is a promise to every person here who is not yet trusted in the Son. He is the light of the world, and you naturally abide in darkness. The only way to be delivered from that darkness, a darkness that will ultimately kill you and destroy you and judge you, is to follow the light, the Son of God. But it's also a word to every believer here. We need to remember as we approach the the table, as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness. You get that? We're not better than unbelievers. We're just like them apart from saving grace. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. But here's what he says. That's who you are. Walk as children of light. When darkness begins to rear its ugly head, let the light of Christ overcome it. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is a word to every unbeliever. It's also a true to every believer. And one of the central ways we nourish this walk is by the Lord's Supper. And so now we want to come to the Lord's Supper, a time of communion. with. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.